Thanks again, praise team. It's good to be back. It was good to be gone, I won't lie. But it's good to be back. I missed you guys. And, uh, and we, we had a great time. Uh, for those who don't know, we spent the first week in uh, the promised land, Costa Rica. Right? So we got to spend, uh, spend a week there back with old friends and, and just staying with old friends and, uh, and working in the church. I uh, uh, had the privilege of teaching a doctrines course in the Servant Leaders Institute at the church. Uh, during the evenings and almost every breakfast and lunch and dinner we were at somebody's house hanging out with with people and just counseling people encouraging them encouraging the pastors that are there and it was just a a wonderful time i prepared just a short video because i thought you guys might want to get to know the pastors there you want to get to know the pastors there all right so these are are the two pastors of of roca viva baptist church in uh in uh, paraiso de cartago it's called in Costa Rica. They, uh, they're, they're going to share with you a little bit about what the Lord's doing in the church right now. And uh, uh, the first pastor is, is uh, going to show you the church where they are meeting in right now. And the second pastor is going to show you the property that uh, the Lord has provided for them as well. So if, uh, if everything works out, um, we should have that video. So if you could show that video right now and then I'll come back. My name is Leo, and I'm one of the pastors of Roca Viva. Y quiero mostrarles este es el lugar donde nuestra iglesia se congrega cada domingo. We'd like to show you where our church congregates every every Sunday. Eh, es un edificio no muy grande. It's a it's a building that's not very big. Caben alrededor de unas 70 personas. We can fit usually around 70 people. Y pues sí hemos tenido en algún momento este servicios donde las personas han tenido que estar de pie acá. And so we've had a lot of services where people have to stand in order to be here. Muy bien, este edificio también es una de las desventajas que tiene es que está muy cerca de la calle. One of the disadvantages that we have in this building is that we're very close to the street. Entonces cada domingo en el servicio hay mucha bulla con los autos que pasan la calle en la carretera. Every Sunday during the service there are cars constantly going by. As, as you can hear, es un ruido bastante molesto y distrae mucho. It's very distracting to the people as they're trying to listen. es una de las razones por la que hemos orado al Señor para poder salir de acá. It's one of the reasons that we've been praying for the Lord to, to get us out of here. Okay, este otro lugar es donde se enseña a los niños. Right, this is where we have uh, the children's classes. Como pueden ver, también es un poco incómodo porque está en un, un sótano. It's in, a, it's in a basement, so it's not exactly comfortable to get to. En situaciones de emergencia, puede ser peligroso para salir con los niños. And if there's an emergency, it would be very dangerous to try and get all the kids out of here in time. Esta área también este, tiene mucha humedad, pueden verlo aquí. It's, it's very, there's a lot of humidity here, as you can, as you can see. Al estar ya tan eh, cerca, inclusive cerca de un río que hay por acá, el lugar es muy húmedo. And there, we're next to a Rio right next door, and so it's very humid here. And that's one of the reasons we've been praying that the Lord would help uh, get us out of here soon. Tanto por la seguridad de los niños y por su salud. For the safety and for the health of the kids. Buenos días. Good, good morning. Me 
llamo Alfredo Portugués. I am Alfredo Portugués. Y soy uno de los pastores de Iglesia Bautista Roca Viva. I'm one of the pastors of Roca Viva Baptist Church. Y estamos acá este, mostrándoles la nueva propiedad. And we're here showing you the new property that we just bought. Da, que muchas, o sea, por muchas oraciones, mucho, mucha donación, eh, logramos esta gran bendición. And it's been through a, a lot of prayer that we've uh, achieved the, the ability to, to purchase this place. Esperamos eh, poco tiempo poder eh, construir el templo de nuestra iglesia acá. And we're hoping to build a new church building here pretty soon. Okay, estamos en otra de las posiciones de la iglesia y recientemente se acaba de voltear árboles. Yeah, we're at uh, the front end of the property here and where we just had to have all the trees uh, cut down. Preparando la iglesia para construirla en este sector. And we're looking at putting the actual building up here. Pensamos que esta es una buena localización para la iglesia. We believe this is the perfect location for our church. Porque estamos muy cerca de una vía principal. Because we're, we're right by the main street here. Que conduce a otros pueblos. And that people drive between the two different towns. Y es fácil así que las personas vean la iglesia acá y poder... And so it's very easy to see the church. It'll be in a very visible place. This is also part of the property where they'll have plenty of places for activities, playing some football, just having a great time. So just a beautiful property and a beautiful place. And we thank the Lord for providing this for the church. So isn't that exciting? Yeah. To think, you know, it started with just a small group of people meeting together in a basement of someone's house, actually, that when it started, who wanted to study the Word of God. And uh, they weren't all believers yet. And uh, in fact, I remember having the opportunity to lead Leo to the Lord. He was the first pastor that you saw there. And uh, right now, you should see what they have in place to train the, the next generation of pastors. And uh, what Leo showed me, what they've done with training their pastors and the, the system that they have in place And they've got, uh, they've got six people in rotation, the preaching rotation, so that they can start another church once they get this one planted and in place. And, uh, and the new place will, will afford about 180 people, which is about as large as they want the church to get, because they want to, to, uh, to start other churches at that point. So where they, the, the whole idea of the church there is to raise up the church to the point where it's healthy enough to reproduce and start more churches. Isn't that cool? And we, we could do that too, couldn't we? Wouldn't that be awesome? Who knows what the Lord, uh, Lord could do with the church this size and with, with people who are willing. So that was just an exciting time. I'm not going to share with you too much about Mexico, um, uh, just because I don't want to make anyone jealous of the beautiful weather we had and all the fun that we had swimming with uh, the turtles, sea turtles, and all sorts of fun stuff. But uh, it was a great time, and thank you for praying for me. And I'm, I'm glad to be back. Well, let's hop back in. Now that we're, uh, we're back, let's hop back into the book of Romans. We're in uh, Romans chapter 9. We're studying uh, the book of Romans, the gospel, making sense of what matters most. Just to catch us up to date, where we are in the context in chapter 9, uh, Paul started the book of Romans with the doctrine of sin. The doctrine of sin. Uh, and he explains why God is just to forgive us of our sins. And then from there, Paul talks about salvation. And how salvation is not through works. We don't receive it through works, but it's, it's, it's an act of grace that we receive it. Uh, it's not by works and through faith. And then that begins a process of sanctification, where we become more and more like Christ. We begin a spiritual journey 
of, of ridding ourselves of, of all that is uh, sinful, but becoming more and more in, in conformed into the image of Christ. And during that process, we learn that we are secure in our salvation. What that means is we are sons of God. There's nothing that we can do that will, will cause us to lose our salvation. And that gives us the security to continue to live and grow in our relationship with God because we know we're his children, right? And uh, what a beautiful thing to be adopted into the family of God. Then uh, last week, actually three weeks ago for, for us, it seems like last week for me, but last week, or three weeks ago, we talked about selection. And uh, chapters 9 through 11, how do you get in? How do you, know, how do you uh, who gets to be chosen? And so a few weeks ago, we talked about three principles of selection. Number one, salvation is never based on how good God knew you would be. Remember that? God did not, did not choose who would be saved based on, I think, oh, this person I need on my team. <laughs> because Christianity just needs what this person, that's not what it is. God did not base uh, salvation on anything like that. Nothing that had to do with our good works. Also, we, we found that salvation does imply a humble cry for mercy from God. That's what, what God's looking for. Humility. Willingness to cry out to God. Recognize our sinfulness. And, and reach out and accept the gift that is salvation. And then we also learned point three. Salvation also implies faith in the promises of God. And we saw that in the example of Jacob. And, and how... Uh, Jacob was chosen based on the fact that he, he responded to God. He, he believed in the promises of God. And that's just like the salvation that, that we have today. So salvation has nothing to do with how good we are. But God's selection is based on what's going to bring him the most glory. And that is, it's glorious when a sinner humbles himself, recognizes his position, and responds to God in faith. Amen? Isn't the gospel a beautiful thing? It's a good thing because if it was based on good works, how many of us would have salvation? Zero, right? Um, so that's, that's the thing. Now, this, though, is we're talking about some deep doctrinal things here, right? I mean, it's, hard, it's hard to wrap our minds around some of this when we start talking about predestination and, and, and uh, how God uh, has foreknowledge of what's going to happen and all those kinds of things. And so one of the questions that can can come out of this. In fact, I had one person ask me, this, uh, ask me a question similar to this right after the, the, the message three weeks ago, and I thought, that's great. It's a perfect question to ask because it's right where we're headed now. And as we go into Romans chapter 9, we're starting in verse 19 uh, for today, and we, we see the question asked right here in the text. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? See, the, the, Paul is anticipating the question that we might be asking at this point. When we start thinking about selection and all of these kinds of things and what it means to be chosen in any sense of the word, we might think, wait, how can that make sense? That, uh, um, who, how can God find fault with us when he could have softened our hearts, right? If, if God has the ability to soften our hearts, we saw that in the, in the case of Jacob, or he has the uh, ability to harden our hearts, as we saw that in the case of Pharaoh a couple of weeks ago. So, so then, how, you know, why does God still find fault? I mean, who can resist his will? That's the, the question that's being asked. It's really a question of God's justice. Uh, why does God still blame us when he could choose to soften our hearts? Does that make sense? So you see what could bring a person to that question, and I think it's a legitimate question. Um, uh, but we have to be very careful when we start asking these kinds of questions, don't we? 
because we're, in a sense, putting God into, on the witness stand, right? Now, I don't know about you, but every time I've read about God in legal senses in the Bible, he's the judge, right? He's not the witness, right? He's not on the dock. He's not on trial and all of those things. But God is willing to at least put himself there, in a sense, for our sake, to help answer some of the questions. And don't worry, he comes out innocent, right? He always does. He's the definition of innocence. And so, uh, so it's okay at this point. But we have to be careful uh, to make sure that we, that we tread carefully because we're talking about the very character of God. And that's something not to take lightly, right? At least someone agrees with me. Thank you, Ray. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so it's the question then of God's, of God's justice that's brought in here. And what I find interesting too is he gives us today, and we're going to look at three insights into God's justice that Paul gives us in, the, in verses 19 through 29. But he starts with a preface, actually. And so let's read the preface in verse 20. It says, But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to the one who formed it, why have you made me like this? Let's just stop there for a moment. First, the first thing Paul does, before answering the question, he wants to make sure that we, we know where we stand in this whole equation, right? And it's like, okay, we'll let, God is going to humor us and put himself on the dock, put himself in the position, but let's check your credentials first. Who are you? Who are you to be able to complain to the one who formed us? Why have you made me the way you formed me? Right? I mean, after all, who's the maker? God. Who's the, the maid? Not the maid in the, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> the one who's been made. That's us. Who's the creator? God. Who's the creature? Us. Right? And so we are creatures of God. We're, we're masters of works of art, but artwork of him. We belong, we belong to him. And so he said, let us check your credentials. And, and we, we have to come to this point where we, since we are the creature and he's the, the creator, we oftentimes don't even understand the big picture. We don't understand all that he's doing, right? Um, we don't get the purpose of what he's doing. And so I would say the, the preface is very simple that you don't have to understand this concept completely. You can still trust in God whether you can wrap your mind around this concept or not. Amen? Amen. So he, right as we go in, before, we, before the Lord even answers the question of, of his justice in salvation, we don't have to grasp it all. And that's okay. That's, that's an alleviating thing. But we have to trust in God. Right? I, mean, I think of Job, and we'll talk about him a little bit more later. There was a point in his life where he needed to trust in God, even though he did not understand all that was going on behind the scenes. Right? And he's praised for the, the suffering servant. And so, uh, so that's the preface. Uh, you know, God could have stopped right there in Romans 9, and that would have been okay. Right? It would have been his right to stop right there and say, I'm not answering the question, just trust me. You have no right to question me. And he would, and he would be right. But in his mercy and in his grace, he does go on. He continues and he answers the questions for us. So let's read in verse 21. Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? 
Now, a couple things to understand in the context here. The word dishonor here does not mean that it was honorable and became dishonorable. It's not something that's, uh, that's, that's bad or, or, or it just means it's not for honor. The word honor then means it's weighty, it's important, it's valuable. Uh, so when I think of the analogy of, of a potter and clay, a potter can take clay and he can work on it and he can paint it and he can design it to make some kind of vase that has no intention of ever being used for common everyday use. Why? Because it's an honorable vessel, right? The same potter can take the same clay and if he chooses to, can make something that he's going to use to eat dinner on every night, right? Or he's going to use it to pour water every day, whatever. That's the dishonorable. That's not that it's dishonorable in the sense that we use the word dishonorable in English, but it's dishonorable in the sense that it is not China. It is not fine work. It is, it is everyday use. And so when we look at the analogy, the potter, does the potter have the right to make China? Yes. Does the potter have the right to make everyday teacups and bowls and plates? Yes, he does. And so God in all of his creation, if we maintain this understanding that, that God is God, we don't have to understand that God can choose to use a person for one use and use another person for a completely different use. Right? That is his right to do. And uh, so that brings us to the first insight uh, of the, the question of God's justice, and that is God has every right to do whatever he wants with his creation. He is the potter, and we are the clay. And we have to remember that. And so the, the idea that, that we could look at God and say, God, you didn't make me good enough for this or good enough for that. And he's saying, I made you perfect just the way I want you for everything I want you to do. Right? Even Moses struggled with that. When Moses saying, Lord, you gave me too big of a task. You did not make, in fact, you, you gave me a speech impediment. I can't speak to people. And, and you want me to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let the people go? And what did God say? Who made your mouth? In other words, Moses, I know what you can and can't do. Don't be the thing formed telling the one who formed it that I made a mistake. I made you perfect for the position that I wanted you to do. And guess what? Not too long. You, go, you skip ahead to chapter 32 and chapter 33 of Exodus. Where are they? They're free. They're at the mountain of God, right? They were disobedient. Speaking going calf, but at least they were free, right? And, and so Moses did his job, and, and so God had a, to, to teach the, the people of Israel a lot of things. But we see that, we see that, um, that idea that, that God has every right to do whatever he wants with his creation. He's the potter, and we are the clay. You know, really, we didn't even have a right to exist. Think about that for a moment. We kind of assume that it's just being human beings. We have the right to a certain level of life. Don't we? If we're honest. Come on, you're Americans, right? I'm an American. We, we, we struggle with this more than a lot of people do. I don't hear any amens for that. Come on, let's be honest. Come on. All right. It's true, though. It's true. We have this idea that, well, if, if I don't live up to a certain standard, then, then somebody is treating me unjustly, right? And... Um, and, and no, wait a minute. Just the very fact that we came into existence, wow. Wow. The fact that God, in all of his sovereignty, as he planned out all of history, made sure that you were born. That is amazing. Isn't it? 
and that God made sure that a system was set up and that all the things would happen just perfectly so that you would be born as you are with your strengths, with your weaknesses. Because God wanted you to be born. That's an amazing thought. And, and so we don't have, we don't have this, this, this level correct in our minds, I think. And, so, so, and everyone can do it because everyone can point to someone higher than them and say, oh man, I wish... You know, I wish, if you're an author, I wish I was an author like so-and-so and had thousands of people wanting my autograph or this or that. Or if you're whatever you might be, you can find somebody that's more successful or bigger and better. And it's just going to lead to a life of discontent. And God's saying, no, I made you perfectly the way you are for a reason. And so God has every right to do whatever he wants with his creation. He's the potter. We're the clay. Let's continue. Verse, verses 22 through 24. Verse 22. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. A couple things that we find here, um, um, interesting, some insights uh, that we find. But I think that the first thing that we learn in this is, is that the answer may lie in what we don't know. Why do I say that? Twice, especially if you go into the Greek, you see it twice. Uh, the way it's worded in, in the English translation, it's only said once, but twice you'll find what if in these verses. What if? What do the words what if mean? What if means, uh, very simply, that you have to take into account something, some kind of scenario that you may not have understood, something that you did not have in mind. Well, what if? Right? You've probably heard the story of, of a guy who's driving down the road and, uh, and then he sees the pastor of his church walk out of the bar and stumbling and, you know, all drunk or whatever. And so he gets back and he calls the, the grapevine, right? And word gets out and whatever. And, and all of a sudden, everyone's up in a, a roar over the pastor being drunk or whatever. And, and then someone says, but what if? What if there's information you don't know? And, of course, you hear, you've probably heard the story and come to find out. The guy had been told his brother was in there. And so he went in there trying to convince his brother to leave. His brother wouldn't leave. He was all in tears. And so he came out. He was focused on other things. And so he trips on his way out a little bit. And, of course, other people take that. They interpret it one way because they only have part of the information, right? But if you take into account the what ifs, then it leaves room to understand the truth. And there's more information. That's why twice we find here, well, what if? And what if? Why? Because maybe the answer to the the question of God's justice lies in the things that we don't know. Does that make sense? And so so there are things that we we just might not understand. I'll take a look at both of those what ifs uh, to give an example here. What if? The first what if is what if God already showed his patience in an abundant way? What if God already showed his patience in an abundant way? As it said in verse 22, what if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering? In other words, he, yeah, he showed his wrath, he showed his justice, but he did it after showing an immense and abundant amount of long suffering. 
Now, I know it's been three weeks of time, but it's only a couple verses earlier. In the same context, what do we find? The story of Pharaoh, right? The story of Pharaoh. What happened with, the, with Pharaoh? Pharaoh asked a question, because God said, told Moses to let my people go. Pharaoh said, who is God? Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh that I should listen to him? That was Pharaoh's question, and God says, I'll answer it. You've heard this many times, so I'm not going to go through the whole thing. But remember what Pharaoh did? Pharaoh hardened his heart. God sent a plague. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Then God lifts the plague, and Pharaoh hardens his heart. God brings a second plague. Right? You know the story. Third time, what, what happened? Pharaoh hardened his heart again. Fourth plague, he hardened his heart. Fifth plague, he hardened his heart. Sixth plague, he said, I'm done, just get them out of here. And God hardened his heart. See, it's a perfect example in the context here of what God's doing. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God already showed an abundant amount of mercy in the life of Pharaoh. Can we agree on that? He went above and beyond the call of duty. And, and, and Pharaoh, who thought he was a god, went through. And God, one by one, was, was, was in, uh, talking about the different, the different gods that the Egyptians uh, believed in. And God wasn't done talking yet. It's like, wait a minute, Pharaoh, you're only halfway done with the answer. So I'm going to continue with the rest of these. So he continued with the rest of them, went through uh, the, the last five plagues, so that all the people throughout all generations, throughout all the lands could know that there is a God who is more powerful than any of the Egyptian gods, which was the number one civilization on the planet at the time. The whole point is God was making a statement. God wasn't just answering the question of Pharaoh. God had us in mind. He had other people in mind and saying, these people need to know that God isn't just pretty good. He isn't better than four or five of the other. He is the God over all gods. Amen? And so God had a message to say. And so in light of that, God said, I already expressed enough, enough mercy with him. I am going to harden his heart. Why? Because I'm not done talking to you yet. Right? And so we see that in kind of, that's a sovereign God. And so, uh, so we, we find in kind of, why then? Why did God do that? Uh, why? Because um, he wanted to show us his mercy to, towards us, and yet his justice towards, towards Pharaoh. The second what if, we actually find in verse 23, um, where it says, basically, what if uh, he wanted to make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. So uh, we find the second what if is, what if God, by showing his justice, punished sinners like Pharaoh in order to teach others to repent. You know, that's actually an act of mercy, isn't it? Sometimes punishing one is an act of mercy. I think I've, I think I've shared the story here before. Uh, when I was a teacher and I was teaching a history class, I was called to the office, I came back in, and those kids were misbehaving, right? And I'm telling them, all right, kids, quiet down. We've got to get back into our seats and, you know, quit hanging on the light fixtures or whatever, you know. And, I can't, and they weren't listening to me. So what did I do? I saw one of the kids who was misbehaving. He was standing on, his, on the seat of his desk. His name was Timmy. I won't uh, mention his last name because I would not want to embarrass Timmy Barton. And, uh, and so I said, Timmy Barton, 
Oops, sorry. Go to the office. I said, who's next? And you know what? Everyone went back to their seats. Everyone quieted down. Their behavior changed. It, in a sense, it was an act of mercy towards everyone else. Now, was I being unjust towards Timmy Barton? No, he was standing in his seat. Come on, right? Um, so so that's, that's what the what if is saying. Is what if God is showing his power to, to some, and he's already shown an abundant amount of mercy, but he's wanting to show his, show his justice so that others could understand the truth. So uh, I look at that and say the answer sometimes to, the, to the, the, the question of God's justice lies in what we don't know. And here's where I'd ask you to consider Job. Consider Job. Job didn't, had no idea what was going on behind the scenes. God was, God was having a conversation with Satan himself. Not just with Pharaoh, with Satan himself. Right? And Satan was making these accusations about God's justice, and God was using Job as an example. And so Job didn't understand why he was going through a personal holocaust. He was losing members of his family, he was losing his health, he was losing his crops, he was losing everything. And he, he had to come to a point where he said, God, this does not look fair to me. Right? You know the story. God, this does not, I, I refuse to curse you, as my wife is suggesting that I do, in, in Job's case. But I don't see it. I don't see the justice. And I don't, I don't understand what's going on. Now, you and I can understand it because we see what's going on behind the scenes. And, and we see what this teaches us all, th- all through history. In fact, Job was, was po- possibly the first book of the Bible written. Not the first chronologically, but the first one written. I mean, Job has had a lot of influence on a lot of people for a lot of years. Amen? And God had all of us in mind, and he was making a statement about himself that helps us understand the purpose of suffering and so on. But he was in the situation. He didn't know what was going on. He didn't understand what was going on. What I find really interesting in that text, God never told him what was happening behind the scenes. God never said, you know, Job, trust me, um, this is going to help for a lot of people for a lot of years, and and I am going to reward you later on. He doesn't say that. What does God say? When finally God gets a chance to speak, all of Job's friends are done. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the universe? Where were you? What can you do? Can, can you take Leviathan home as a pet? I spoke him into existence. That's, that's how God responded. And he didn't have to wrap his mind around it. He just had to say, you know what? Somewhere out there, there must be a reason that is beyond what I can see right now, and I'm going to trust in God. And that's exactly what he did. In fact, how did Job respond at the end of the book of Job? He said, he didn't say, I get it now. He didn't say anything. He just said, I placed my hand over my mouth. I'm done talking. Because he began to grasp the immensity of our God. And he said, I can trust in that. I can suffer if that's what he wants me to do. Amen? What a powerful testimony that Job has had in my life and in your lives and in many people's lives. He didn't understand it. And then when you step back and you see it from God's perspective, God had all, he doubled his money. He doubled his children. He, he, he did all sorts of great things for him. And, and, uh, and Job is, is now a hero of the faith. If Job had known all of that ahead of time, I think he would have said, good plan, God, right? 
I'm sure he'd say that now if we could hear him. He probably is saying that right now. We just can't hear him. And, and so that's, that's Job. The answer to the question of God's justice oftentimes ends up being in what we don't know. The facts that we don't know. But we can trust in God who does know. Amen? And, uh, and so uh, that's a perfect example for us. Let's continue to see what, uh, what Paul tells us then from here. He gives us a couple examples from Scripture, from Hosea and Isaiah. Here's the first one that we find in verses 25 and 26. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place that where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. So this first example we find is in, in Hosea. Uh, it comes from chapter 2, verse 23. And, and, and we find people who were not his people. They were not called his people. What happens to them? They will be called my people. In the context, who, who, are the, who are his people that were called? Israel. But he's saying there are people who are not of Israel who are going to be called my people. It's part of the, the, the selection of God, right? And he was saying, I am going to take people who are not called, and I am going to call them my own. Why did he do that? He did that so that we could all see God's mercy. We saw people who were not part of the, the people of God, but when they did what we just talked about last week, when they responded in faith, and when they humbly uh, came to a point where they, they accepted that God was God, what happened? He said, you weren't my people, but now you are. Several examples in the Old Testament. First one that comes to my mind is Rahab, since we studied the book of Joshua last. Remember Rahab? She was not an Israelite. But the spies came in, and she said, I don't fear my own government. I fear your God. So I'm going to help you guys. And God said, and not only brought her in to the, to the people of Israel, but she's part of the line of Christ. You don't get much more Israel than that. Right? And so God said, people who are not my people, with this faith and with their repentance, they come in, they are my people. I don't know about you, but this gets my blood boiling because I'm not Jewish, right? He thought about me there too. Right? That God let me become a participant in salvation. Praise the Lord for that. I don't deserve it. And so it's an example from, from Hosea. We find the, the exact opposite example in, in uh in Isaiah, verses, uh, uh, in verses 27 and 28 of Romans 9, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. So who was called again? Israel. And they think, but who's saved? Israel? No. The remnant of Israel. What's a remnant? A remnant is the leftover parts, right? That means the, the bulk of it is not, but the remnant is the, the remaining parts. I, I usually think of it in, in terms of carpet, right? So when you go to buy a remnant, what do you do? You, you, someone ordered a big piece, and, and, and because of the size that it comes in, you have some leftover, and maybe you have a leftover piece that's big enough to, to do a small room or this, that, so you purchase a remnant, 
and you can carpet your office with that. As you can tell, I love to make, uh, make a deal when it comes to fixing things up at our house as cheaply as possible. <laughs> so that's where I hear the word remnant most often. God calls Israel the remnant. It's only the remnant that are saved. So, so in Isaiah, you have the exact opposite happen. You have people who are called my people who actually weren't my people. They were not my people. And so we, we see in Isaiah the exact opposite. Why? Why does God do this? Why does God have people who were called, like, it, like Israel, who were not genuinely saved? And the, the answer is that, that is very simple, because God wanted, or God wanted us to see his justice. So the people who, they had the truth, they had the informational truth, but they did not humble themselves before God. They did not put their faith in what God had revealed to them. And God said, That's, I'm not accepting you as my own. It's a strong thing, isn't it? And so uh, we, see how, we see how the two work together. We have God choosing, and at the same time, we have the importance of our responding, right? And the problem with uh, when we get into our arguments over Calvinism and Arminianism, and we take those to the extremes, and when we take them to the extremes, we, we don't get a full balance anymore of the two sides of this, that God is still in control of everything, but at the same time, he knew in his foreknowledge how we would respond, and and we must respond accordingly. And so, um, so that brings us to that understanding that, that, um, that the answer to what God's, just, or God's administration of justice is usually found in what we don't grasp, what we don't understand, what we don't see. So... So far, we've seen that God has every right to do whatever he wants to with his creation. We've also seen that the answer lies in what we, we don't understand and don't understand. And, and so the third one we'll find in, here in verse 29. And Isaiah uh, said before, Unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we would become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Think about that for a moment. Sodom and Gomorrah, you know the story, right? And, and Sodom and Gomorrah was so evil that God said, I'm going to destroy these cities. It was two cities that uh, were close enough together. As they built, they kind of became one city. And, uh, and they were so evil. They were so evil. And uh, they were in, involved in all sorts of sexual perversion and violence. And, and even when the angels came into the city, they, they were, the people, men, attempted to rape them. I mean, they got blinded them, and they continued to try and rape them. It was just a bad, bad situation. And he's saying, wait a minute. Unless the Lord of Sabbath had left a seed, what would have happened to us? We would become like that. We would have become like that. A lot of times, I think, we, we forget who we would be if not for God planting the seed inside of us. You know, in fact, I want us to remember all the way back to Romans chapter 1. Well, let let me put the insight up there, and then we'll go back to Romans 1. If God had never intervened, we would end up like Sodom and Gomorrah. By the way, I... I think in the context, there's two meanings of this. We would end up like them in the sense of our behavior would be like their behavior. But also, 
that our end would be like their end. Because do you remember the end of the Sodom and Gomorrah story? It's not a good one for Sodom or Gomorrah. Right? And, and so God destroyed them. And isn't that the end of us all if we followed our, our human natures? Right. Our, our end would be total destruction by fire. Right? That's the picture that God gave us with Sodom and Gomorrah. We would follow the path to wrath. When we go back all the way to Romans chapter 1, you might remember this. This is, this is our path of degradation. We start as image bearers, right? God made us as human beings in the image of God. We are to reflect the glory of God. That's why we were created. But then we enter a stage of what I call ignorance. We ignore God. We pretend like God doesn't exist. We act as if there are no rules of morality, right? We, uh, uh, we create theories of how the whole world came to existence without a God, right? Uh, uh, we have psychologists who create theories of the soul without God. That was uh, um, Freud's theory. and Darwin's idea was to create a, a theory of origins without God. And, and you have all sorts of ideas. You just ignore God, pretend like he doesn't exist. And then from there, impurity. Impurity is when we start experimenting with our, with our natural desires and say, okay, I'm going to follow my desires instead of following any law. I'm not going to follow God. I'm not going to follow any. I'm going to do what I want to do, right? Isn't that what we all would do by nature without God? Follow our natural desires. And then from there to indulgence. And, and there we fall into what we call the law of diminishing returns where, where when you're involved in an activity that gives you some kind of false joy or, or it's an illegitimate sense of joy. You lose that pleasure with time and repetition. So you have to do something more. You have to do something beyond that. And that's why Cedar Point comes up with something bigger and better every year, right? That's the nature. And so then they start getting involved in unnatural sins. The Bible talks about, uh, about homosexuality here in Romans 1 and and, and lesbianism and some of those things. And, and this is what happens to a culture when it starts to ignore God. When they pretend that God doesn't exist, this is what happens. And, and then it goes, and then I put up for the last one, inhumanity, because human nature, the, the, the purpose of humanness is to reflect the glory of uh, the image of God. And we get to a point where we're not reflecting him at all. And then it, and it talks in Romans 1 of all types of sin and violence and hatred and all of those things. This is the path that humans take without God intervening. Unless you think that that would apply to everyone but you, if you are not in that situation, it's because God has done something in your life. Right? If not for the, the grace of God, where would we be? This is the answer. And, and that's what insight number three is all about. If God had not intervened, we would all end up like Sodom and Gomorrah. So when we, we accuse God for intervening, we have to think twice about that accusation. Right? We really have to think twice about that. So what does this mean for me? Uh, and we've talked about some deep stuff. Are your brains hurting yet? Yeah, they should. Okay? Because right, right now, we are kind of... At, we, it's, I'll use a scuba diving analogy. We have gone really, really deep right now. All right? This is the deep part of Romans 9. And it, it, it will tend to, we have to work, we'll work our way back up as well. This is what happens, by the way, when, when you let your pastor go off to the Caribbean coast for vacation. 
comes back with scuba diving illustrations. All right, but but this this is where we're at. I know this is deep theology, deep theology, but here's what it boils down to. Um, how does this apply to us? What about uh, how does this uh, what does this mean to me? Number one, if the spirit is moving in your heart, respond. If the spirit is moving in your heart, respond. <laughs> Because you never know if he's going to continue to do that. You can reject and reject and reject and be like Pharaoh thinking, hey, you know what? If I really need to, I'll, I'll, I'll convert, but I'll wait. Well, what happened after five times? <laughs> I'm done. I'm hardening your heart. We don't know how long. If your heart is soft, it's soft because of what? Because God's working in it. That's why we don't just evangelize. We pray for souls to be saved. Right? Because it requires God doing something and then us do in obedience telling people. And so if we rely on either one without the other, we're in trouble. Amen? If we just say, ah, oh, God's going to save people. I've heard some people say, God's going to save who he's going to save, so we don't really have to evangelize. I don't want to be you standing before God on Judgment Day. Right? Or people who say, well, we just evangelize and it's all about us. No, we need to be praying for souls. We need to make prayer number one priority in our church. Amen? Amen. And, uh, and I'll preach that as long as I, as long as I can. But you never, if the Spirit is moving in your heart, respond. There might be someone here today, and you've heard the gospel many times. And you're thinking, maybe later. You know, I, there's still a few things I want to try out first, a couple things I want to do first before I become a Christian, and whatever it might be. If your heart is soft enough to respond today, you better do it today. Don't walk out of these doors without knowing for sure where you're going to spend eternity. And, uh, and, and I'll give you an opportunity to respond in a few moments. Second thing, without God's intervention, you never would have accepted him. Let that sink in. Without God's intervention, you never would have accepted him. It's not a matter of, wow, you know, praise me, I found God. No, God found you. And, uh, you know, we, the hymn doesn't go, praise me, praise me, Jesus is lucky to have me. <laughs> our hymn writers knew what they were talking about. There's some good theology in our hymns. Not that hymn that I was just singing. Without God's intervention, where would you be? And because of that, I'd, I'd like you to just take a moment right now and consider what you would be like who you would be if God had not come into your life. Just do that for a moment. Think about every moment where you had a choice between doing what was right and doing what you wanted to do. What if every time that happened, you just decided to do what you wanted to do? Think about that for a moment. Because remember, it's not just the choices. Those are new paths. Because those choices are going to affect the, the rest of your life. And, and, and you continue those, those, those choices. Think about where, would you, where, where you would be right now. The kind of person you would be. The kind of financial debt you might have. The kind of a mess you might have in your marriage. The relationships, the broken relationships with your kids, your family. Things that would be going on. I, I don't know about you, but does, does that give you an attitude of gratitude? Are you grateful for where you are? Because of where God has taken you and what he has saved you from? And then multiply that by, even, by an eternity. Are you grateful that he's gonna, you're going to spend eternity with God in heaven as opposed, as opposed to an eternity 
in hell paying for that lifestyle? I don't know about you. I'm overwhelmed by gratefulness when I meditate on this. So what about you? Three quick questions and we'll close. Number one, is God calling you to salvation right now? Is there anyone in here right now that you'd say, God's calling me. I'm at that point where I could choose to, to respond or not. Today is the day to respond. Question number two, if you are saved, is the Spirit convicting you of anything right now? If the Spirit's convicting you of something right now, while you're, while you're soft, respond now. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, does God's abundant display of mercy cause you to be overwhelmed with gratefulness? Because this is the motivation for every day. Every day we lay down, we lay down our cross, right? Or actually, we, every day we pick up our cross and we go forward. Why? Because we're grateful for what God has done for us. And if we don't reflect on that, if we don't meditate on that, this might not be new information for a lot of us, but if we don't go to it every day, then we, then we, we're going to wonder why we don't have spiritual power. But when we reflect on what God has done for us every day, that's what gives us the power to live our Christian life. Amen? And so I'd like us to, right now just to bow our heads for a moment, cl- close our eyes so that not about looking around. It's just between you and God right now. And I want to go back to that first question. Is, is there anyone in here who would say, Pastor Dave, I don't want to lose my opportunity. I'm going to respond for salvation right now. And what I'd like you to do is, I'm, I'm just right from your seat. I'm going to have you pray. I don't want to waste any more time right now. This is such an important thing. I'm going to ask you to say a prayer. There's no magic formula, but the Bible tells us very clearly how we can be saved. And so say this in your own words. But pray this prayer. Dear God, I know that I am a sinner. I know that I do not deserve heaven. I do not deserve to have my sins forgiven. But I also know that you sent Jesus Christ to pay the price for my sins so that I could have eternal life and spend eternity in heaven with you. Lord, I accept this gift today. I repent of my sins, my past sins, my present sins, and my future sins. And you paid for them on the cross. I accept this gift and thank you for this gift of eternal life. <laughs>